Great. Well, welcome back to the Armchair Trader podcast. Um, and this week we're talking about nickel. Uh, nickel uh, being a um, metal that is in increasingly um, greater demand, um, particularly now as we're getting new um, sources of demand for it. And if you were a manufacturer of electric vehicles sitting in the US, you'd probably have high on your Christmas wish list a large uh, potential resource maybe just across the border in Canada that you might be able to get access to in the future. Um, and that's certainly what I thought when I first met FPX Nickel and specifically Martin Churen, who's the CEO, um, who is joining us on the podcast this morning. So welcome, Martin. Hi, Stuart. Uh, good to chat with you again. So um, for those who are not familiar with FPX Nickel, haven't come across it before, can you give us um, a brief overview of of the company and the projects you're looking at. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So FPX is a Canadian company. We're headquartered in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, so on the west coast of Canada. And it's a fairly straightforward story. We're 100% focused on the development of a pre-feasibility study phase or stage uh, nickel project in British Columbia on the west coast of Canada. That project is called Baptiste. So we're moving Baptiste forward to a pre-feasibility study uh, this year. Uh, it is one of the world's largest undeveloped nickel deposits, and we think it can be a key you know, strategic resource uh, feeding units to the growing uh, North American electric vehicle battery su- supply chain uh, by the end of this decade. And traditionally, what was what has nickel been used for um, other than obviously for, for, for batteries, which are of this, the, the new area where it's being used. Yeah. So, you know, um, nickel, the principal use of nickel, even to this very day is for the production of stainless steel. So stainless steel, of course, has many consumer applications in your own home. I'm sure cutlery appliances and the like also, of course, widely used in hospitals, uh, and in all kinds of industrial application, uh, as, um, uh, supporting rebar in things like wharves and bridges, uh, for tankage uh, and and piping as well. Um, the, the, the battery segment of demand is quite a small slice of the pie. Two-thirds of nickel demand currently is for stainless steel, and only about 6 to 7% <clears throat> of nickel is used for batteries. Uh, but, of course, that, that use of batteries is expected to grow and, and take an expanding part of that pie. But at the same time, we continue to see and continue to expect very robust stainless steel demand going forward, you know, as the rest of the developing world um, continues to catch up to Western living standards, the per capita intensity of stainless steel consumption uh, in those developing countries, um, um, which is currently quite a bit lower than Western countries, will continue to accelerate. And so stainless steel demand growth is typically you know, well in excess of global GDP growth. Um, and really the new demand coming from electric vehicles is almost the cherry on top of what is what was already a very robust, you know, uh, industrial growth story for stainless uh, demand. So, yeah, something that doesn't get spoken about a lot really is that is the fact that you're going to be seeing more demand for this going forward, even, even without the battery sector. But uh, the battery sector itself, obviously something that uh, creates a lot of excitement. Um, there's a lot of anticipated demand, particularly as the US 
uh, vehicle sector starts to shift over more and more into electric vehicles. And that certainly seems something um, that the Biden administration is interested in. Um, as someone with a potentially massive nickel project um, just over the border in British Columbia, how important do you see that demand from North American manufacturers for something like this? Yeah, it's a huge strategic import to the uh, to the car companies. Um, the transition to electric vehicles will create uh, winners and losers among the incumbent automakers. The winners will be those that secure raw materials and the losers will be the ones that do not. And, and I do think the landscape of who's still in business in the auto industry will change dramatically over the next 10 to 15 years and it will hinge on raw material uh, security of supply. Given the significant role that nickel plays in the battery chemistry and its principal function is to increase the range of the battery and to ensure fast as possible charging time. So it is, it is critical. Um, you know, that demand for nickel uh, is, is, is as I, as we alluded to expected to grow, but it's of it's of existential import to the automakers. They simply must secure these raw materials. And so what, what that has created for us is a, a widened landscape of competitive tension around our project. You said there, Stuart, that it's a potentially very large uh, project. It already is very, uh, well known to be a very large deposit. It's, as I said, one of the five largest underdeveloped nickel deposits in the world. Um, there are many, not many of such deposits, of course, in the world, much less in Canada. And so while we've continued to see a lot of interest in our company from large diversified mining companies, over the last two years, we've had an increasing intensity of interest from the car makers and the battery makers. And in recent months, we have started to see that those car companies are making upstream investments, whereby they are providing uh, significant capital to uh, junior companies advancing lithium and nickel projects. And the reason those car companies are advancing that capital is to get their hands on future supply via offtake agreements. Uh, the most well, I think, known example of that recently was General Motors investing $650 million into the equity of Lithium Americas, which is advancing a, a project in Nevada. And I expect that in the years to come, we will see tens of billions of dollars invested by car companies into junior mining companies like FPX. And that will provide, a, obviously, a significant source of capital for us to ultimately bring this project into fruition. And this, this ability to secure raw materials, um, when, when we I first started looking at this a number of years ago, at the time, the only people who were talking about it were actually the miners themselves. Now you're seeing that move on to the more mainstream news agenda. You're seeing people like Joe Biden talking about it. It sounds to me like like this is really becoming much more of a, a, a hot button issue, um, both in Washington and, and uh, further afield. That ability for, for US manufacturers to get access to those raw materials and Again, I keep coming back to the point, but the fact that you've got that resource right there over the border in Canada, that's got to be a massive plus factor for this company. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, nickel stands at the intersection of these two huge trends that are affecting 
the entire global economy. One is the trend to electrification, and nickel is a fundamental part of that. But two is the sort of the geopolitical considerations around um, this concept of friendshoring or deglobalization, where you know regional supply chains are having to gain in critical importance. Obviously, the uh, the military, you know, the war in Ukraine uh, has created a significant issue for Europe throughout this winter. And so the uh, security of raw materials, um, of energy materials, oil and gas, but also lithium, nickel, etc., that goes into batteries, this is a significant geopolitical issue. And it's causing automakers and governments to want to ensure that they have friendly sources of supply. And that's something that uh, the Biden administration is actually put, putting into law. And the way they're putting that into law is they're tying the EV subsidies in the United States. Uh, So that is up to $7,000 available to buyers of EVs for each vehicle. But in order for those vehicles to be eligible, the raw materials uh, going into those vehicles need to be sourced from free trade allies. And if any amount of, of those materials is coming via China or Russia, the vehicle is not eligible for the subsidy. So that places critical importance and a strategic, you know, even greater importance on raw materials coming from friendly countries like Canada. Um, Nickel is particularly acutely exposed to this. China and Russia, they have effective control over something in the region of 65% of global nickel production. So if none of those nickel units are permitted into the United States uh, to be eligible for the EV subsidy, that leaves not a lot of nickel from the rest of the world, um, from places like Canada and Australia, that would be suitable sources. And and that only highlights the, the critical importance and the strategic importance of, of deposits like FPXs. And it really speaks to, you know, the, the high degree of interest we've seen from, you know, major car makers in our in our project. And speaking specifically about the project, um, the nickel that you have uh, is called Ararite nickel. What's so special about that? Because that's that's not just ordinary common and garden nickel, is it? No, it's not. So um, this is a unique deposit. Um, most nickel, all current nickel production, in fact, comes from either sulfide sources from places like Canada and Russia or from nickel laterites in places like Indonesia and the Philippines. Our nickel is a nickel iron alloy mineral called a wearerite, as you mentioned. And while there are many occurrences of a wearerite nickel all over the world, uh, we are the first company to have found a deposit where the primary form of nickel in the deposit is as a wearerite, as opposed to sulfide or laterite. So with that come uh, both great opportunities and challenges. The challenges are really to do mostly with sort of market reception. You know, the mining industry is not noted as, as uh, particularly innovative. And so <clears throat> bringing a new source of, of metal supply to the market is sometimes viewed a bit skeptically. But we actually think that the Awarewhite style of nickel has significant advantages. Uh, and we've demonstrated that through our work on, um, on the metallurgical flow sheet. So all of the test work that we've done at both the laboratory and the pilot scale, treating you know, many tons of material from our deposit, has shown that the aware white nickel can be recovered more readily through a simpler, lower cost process. 
and it produces a much cleaner product. And the reason for that is that this aware white nickel will only form in a host rock environment that is depleted in sulfur. And, and therefore that host rock is also depleted in the nasty elements that are typically associated with sulfide hosted deposits. These are elements like arsenic, antimony, mercury, selenium. These are effectively absent from our deposit. And so not only can we recover our, our nickel units uh, more effectively through a simpler, lower cost process, but we can also produce that clean product that can then more easily be integrated into the production of nickel sulfate, which is the key chemical that goes in the batteries. So we've really got, undergone this transition, I think, from sort of uh, trying to defend or explain a wear white nickel to the market to now really playing offense, so to speak, and really highlighting its, its advantages, the distinct advantages it has over other types of nickel deposits. And ultimately, we think that this will be viewed as a bit of a hinge point in the history of nickel production. This is a disruptive new source of nickel supply. And, uh, you know, in the coming years, we will be getting very close to uh, being able to be into production and to, 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 uh, to demonstrate that conclusively. Some people will be saying, yes, but, you know, this all sounds great, but are you getting any, is the, are you getting any proper recognition for the strategic importance of this, this project? Obviously, we can't talk about some of the discussions you're having um, with other companies interested in it, but uh, we, you do have some news which has come out recently about uh, Canadian government funding. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, just recently we've received some funding from the federal government of Canada. Um, this is under the umbrella of their critical mineral strategy, and it's really the first <clears throat> deployment of capital under that strategy was to provide funding to uh, a half dozen companies uh, who applied uh, for, for that uh, uh, late last year. We understand there were several hundred companies who applied for the funding, and the funding is designed to accelerate test work to for the production of battery-grade uh, metal products from Canadian sources, um, and particularly those sources that may be innovative or disruptive, as, as ours would be. Uh, so we underwent, you know, fairly lengthy process of due diligence. You know, the application that we submitted ran to almost 200 pages of technical data uh, and support letters from gov other gov levels of government and, and local community members. Um, so it's a great validation for us. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, it, it, we believe it may be the first of sig significantly more funding opportunities from the federal government going forward uh, here in Canada. And we've also been invited by the U.S. Department of Defense in the United States to apply for funding as they also have said that they are willing to fund Canadian projects in critical minerals that are at the feasibility study stage, which we will soon be at that stage. Um, and so the, you know, the provision of, of non-repayable free money, you know, free grants from government sources in Canada and the United States you know, will be a key source of funding for us. Um, and what it should tell investors, I think, is that we have far less reliance on the public uh, equity markets um, in order to fund ourselves going forward. And so the way to, to kind of get positioned into something like FPX will be to have to buy it in the open market as opposed to, to doing it through financings. The other thing I would note is the late last year, you know, we took on a new corporate strategic investor 
um, this company bought 9.9% of our equity is now 9.9% Cornerstone shareholder. We did not at that time uh, disclose the identity of that party. Uh, that's due to their um, uh, preference uh, for confidentiality at this point. But I can tell you it's a large public company uh, very with a large footprint of international operations. And their investment in us represents a major technical validation and endorsement. And we hope to be in a position at some point this year to reveal their identity. And, and I, I can assure you that it would be very well viewed in the market um, as, as that endorsement. And then it's fair to say that, that, that you are the only Canadian miner of your size to get this, this funding from, from the government as well. It's unusual for a company like this to get that level of recognition. We were the only junior nickel company to get that funding. That's correct. And, you know, that has really you know, placed us in a good position with the federal government. Uh, they now recognize, I think, the, the importance of this project. And as I said, it may, it may well open doors to further opportunities for us going forward. And this really represents the, the start of both Canadian and U.S. government um, getting more involved in backing miners of these kinds of critical metals and minerals. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what that, what that looks like from where you're sitting at the moment in terms of the actual climate for government support and the Canadian critical mineral strategy? Is that creating a new um, sense of optimism within the within the the space that you're operating in? Yeah, it, it definitely is. I mean, I was recently at the PDAC, which is the largest mining conference that happens in Toronto each year in the early part of March. And critical minerals was the topic. No one, you know, the discussion around gold was virtually non-existent. <clears throat> um, you know, this really starts because of the Chinese strategy, right? The Chinese uh, asserted uh, their you know, strategic imperatives in this in this critical mineral supply chain many years ago. And that's really a function of the sort of the central control, central planning of that of that economy allows them to coordinate many parts of the supply chain to ensure that they can secure the raw materials and then produce the batteries and the vehicles themselves. And the rest of the world's governments are now playing catch up to that. So in the, in the United States last year, the Inflation Reduction Act by the Biden administration you know, uh, entailed hundreds of billions of dollars now of, of support and subsidies for the development of that um, of that electric vehicle supply chain in the United States. Uh, Canada is is going to be tabling a new budget here uh, federally in the coming weeks, and we expect that that will include a significant response to the IRA. So, in a, in effect, Western governments are now following sort of China's lead, and and really not leaving it only to industry to solve for this electrification um, challenge um, because we know that it is, it is an enormous challenge to, to meet the Paris climate goals. And given the cut, you know, the, the emphasis that governments have placed on meeting those, those targets, they will spend a significant amount of money to uh, accelerate that transition. And that means that uh, companies like ours in the mining industry will be direct beneficiaries of that. I know you can't really say much more on this subject, but uh, I just thought I would put you on the spot slightly. Um, you've mentioned already you've got this strategic investor. You can't really talk about them. Um, you've mentioned already that the the, the electric battery sector in, in the U.S. is getting much more interested in, in the, the uh, producers of the, of the metals they're going to be needing. 
Um, do you think, can you say anything more about, you know, possible future opportunities or discussions that you think you might be able to have with companies that are interested in these sorts of nickel and cobalt products? And does it really create a whole new opportunity for you there at FPX Nickel? Yeah, it absolutely does. And this is something that I don't think <clears throat> the market is really a, fully awakened to. By the market, I mean retail and institutional investors are not paying an, yet enough attention to this, not nearly enough attention in my view. A company like FPX, <clears throat> traditionally as a junior mining company with a large project, with a sort of a world scale project, um, uh, you know, traditionally there would have been maybe a dozen companies, large diversified mining companies who would have been the potential acquirer of something like this or the potential strategic funder of it. Now in the year 2023, that remains the case. What we're also seeing is that companies that aren't, have not been in base metals are thinking about, you know, deploying money into base metals. We've seen, for example, in recent years, companies like Sabani Stillwater go from being a precious metals focused producer to now getting into things like nickel and other uh, critical minerals. Um, so you've seen a widening of the number of mining companies that are interested in these <clears throat> projects. That's number one. Number two, you've seen greater sources of supply of funding from the government. And number three, you've started to see deployment of capital into the mining industry by the car companies and the battery companies. So the analogy I would make here is uh, like uh, if you're selling a if you're selling a house, uh, and um, you have you know you you do your best to fix up the house and make it clean and and you have an open showing, and um, where maybe in years gone past you know five or six people might have shown up. Now you might have a hundred people coming through the door and they might be competing with themselves to, um, to outbid each other for the prize of buying your home. Well, in that analogy, FPX is the home and our, our FPX is the homeowner. The Baptiste project is our home. And we're seeing a lot more people coming through the open house, uh, expressing an interest in, in, you know, potentially buying or at least investing in the company. Well, that's fantastic. Can you give us a, an update on the, current progress with the project um, in terms of the exploration activity at Baptiste, where you are right now. Can you tell us a bit more about um, where you are with the actual Baptiste project right now um, and, and what your plans are for it in the course of this year? Yes. So as I mentioned, the Baptiste project is at the pre-feasibility study phase. And so we have commenced that work and the PFS will be complete by September. That represents a significant, um, you know, uh, scaling up of the engineering work vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the scoping study that we would have done on the project a couple of years ago. So that work is well underway. Uh, the results will be out in September. In advance of that, we'll have continued news flow on, uh, particularly on metallurgical work. Uh, one, to confirm the recovery basis that will underpin the economics of the PFS. And secondly, for the production of battery-grade nickel sulfate. So for the first, times in, first time in the project's history, we'll be able to show that clear path of production of first nickel concentrate and then subsequently nickel sulfate, which is the chemical that goes in the battery. And that, that, that first achievement of production of nickel sulfate is expected to be announced in the market within the next you know, uh, five to six weeks, in fact. That's a major milestone, and and you know that's something of particular importance because we'll be able to share uh, product specifications uh, with battery companies and auto companies 
and really show for the first time in the project's history that we will indeed be a producer of that of that uh, uh, material. Um, there are also a few other things that we're working on of a strategic uh, nature. We continue to see a lot of interest from a lot of other counterparties, um, and you know we may potentially have news on that over the coming months. Um, but yeah, the main focus is really part production of that preliminary feasibility study, which sets the stage for us to potentially enter the permitting process for the project in 2024. Well, that's brilliant. Uh, we'll obviously be play, keeping a very close eye on, on developments at the company and keeping our, our readers up to date on that and, and hopefully get you back on the podcast soon to, with further updates from FPX Nickel. Yeah, absolutely. It is going to be a busy year and yeah, it would be great to get back on after we've had some of those news flow accomplishments, uh, whether they're, they're ones that we have definitive line of sight to right now or ones that may uh, be sort of happy surprises, let's say, to the market. Great. Well, thank, thank you very much indeed for your time this morning, Martin. That's brilliant. Thank you, Stuart. You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast. Make sure you visit our website, www.thearmchairtrader.com, for your daily dose of financial markets news and sign up to our free newsletter there.